you please uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 8. And uh, this is Bill Dad's speech, um, Bill Dad being one of the three main friends of Job. We've already heard from Eliphaz, and Job has responded to Eliphaz, and now Bill Dad speaks up. And after that, we will eventually get to Job's reply, but this morning we, we read here in Scripture what Bildad um, spoke to Job. So hear God's word from Job chapter 8. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things in the words of your mouth be a great wind? Does God pervert justice, or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, if you are pure and upright, surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. Though your beginning was small, your latter days will be very great. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing. For our days on earth are a shadow. Will they not teach you and tell you and utter words out of their understanding? Can papyrus grow where there is no marsh? Can reeds flourish where there is no water? While yet in flower and not cut down, they wither before any other plant. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. He is a lush plant before the sun, and his shoots spread over his garden. His roots entwine the stone heap. He looks upon a house of stones. If he is destroyed from his place, then it will deny him, saying, I have never seen you. Behold, this is the joy of his way. And out of the soil others will spring. Behold, God will not reject a blameless man, nor take the hand of evildoers. He will yet fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with shouting. Those who hate you will be clothed with shame, and the tent of the wicked will be no more. We need to be careful about taking things too far. For example, someone might say, I like coffee. But it would be a misunderstanding for me to assume that this person wants to drink coffee even in the evening before bed, or that this person drinks only coffee. Let's be careful that we not misinterpret and over-apply what is meant or intended by what we or others say. And this caution especially needs to be applied to our understanding of God and his ways with us. For too often, people misapply the teachings of Scripture by not thinking through all of the implications and consequences. For example, it is true that God is love. But for some, God is only loving. God is never just in his dealings with sinners. And since God's love is thought to be incompatible with his justice, and since love is preferred over justice, they would rather believe in a loving God than a just God. Others will say God is just over against him being a God of love. They wrongly say his justice is incompatible with his love, and so they throw out God's love. But in either scenario, we are left with 
two contradictory gods, neither of which is the God of the Bible. This is going to be the case as long as people insist that God's attributes are contradictory and as a result pick and choose which attributes they want to accept. So what happens when our thinking about truth is too narrow and simplistic and we refuse to accept the full counsel of God? This problem is gra- uh, graphically illustrated by what Bildad the Shuhite says to Job. He is one of Job's so-called three friends. He is the second of the friends to speak to Job. His speech is here captured in chapter 8, and this chapter is basically a theology of justice that says God always punishes the wicked and always blesses the righteous. There's no room for any nuances in this view. Essentially, he doesn't allow for the possibility that God's children would suffer for any reason other than to be punished. There can be no good reason for suffering that would make it compatible with grace and blessing, but it is only strict justice being poured out upon sin. That's Bildad's simplistic view, and I've taken his view as the theme of this chapter, justice without grace. And this morning I want to direct your attention, first of all, to Bildad's system of justice, and then the second point has to do with a needed corrective to Bildad's view which is the reality of grace. So we begin with Bildad's system of justice. We can see right away that Bildad is not a nice guy. Uh, This becomes very evident from the beginning of his response to Job. Job has barely spoken. Bildad is already angry. He's throwing word grenades. We might have thought that Eliphaz was rude and insensitive, but Bildad takes it to a whole nother level. He begins, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? Job has only briefly spoken. It's what's recorded in chapter 6 and 7. And Bildad is already fed up. How long will you say these things, he says. It's not that Bildad has a short attention span and is bored with what Job has been saying. The problem is that he can't stand what Job is saying. He feels like it is just a bunch of hot air, a great wind. Words with no meaning or substance. And Bildad is picking up on what Job has said. His word choice appears to be very deliberate. For Job refers to his own words as wind back in chapter 6, verse 26, where he says, Do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? And his point was that if what he is saying is considered by his friends to be only wind, and therefore of no significance, then why reprove him? Why be so concerned about what he's saying? Or Job may have been calling upon his friends to show him some compassion, give him some latitude in his suffering, because it's not uncommon, right, for a person who is under a lot of stress to say things in the heat of the moment that are not their true convictions. And so Job is probably saying, show me some grace. Don't come down too hard on me for every single word that I have spoken in my anguish. But Bildad doesn't have that kind of patience, and he bluntly tells Job, you're right, Job, your words are a wind, in fact, a great wind, just a bunch of worthless nonsense. Does that sound like a loving way of starting out a conversation? (laughs) Bildad is apparently a man who, who likes to get down to business. He doesn't beat around the bush. He immediately puts Job in his place and presents the great principle that guides 
the rest of everything that he says. The principle there in verse 2, a principle that has to do with God's justice, says, does God pervert justice or does the Almighty pervert the right? And the perspective that comes out in what Bildad goes on to say is that if you are experiencing hardships in life, it is undoubtedly due to sin in your life for which God is punishing you. There's no such thing as far as Bildad is concerned for hard circumstances coming against someone who is walking in fellowship with God. Those who are blameless and godly will not suffer as Job has been suffering. This is his worldview from which there is no deviation. And uh, let's consider what he believes in more detail. First, Job, and we ought to be utterly shocked by this, is told that his children were killed under God's judgment for their sin. Verse 4, if your children have sinned against him, that is God, he that is God has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Now, Bildad uses the word if, if your children have sinned, as though to portray, he's not being harsh, he's not being judgmental, but the reality is that Job's children have died. (laughs) The, The implications are perfectly clear. According to Bildad, Job's children died under the judgment of God. Second, Bildad turns the ifs on Job, verses 5 and 6. If you will seek God, if you are pure and upright. If you will seek God, if you are actually pure and upright, God will come to you and restore your greatness. Talking about earthly, physical greatness. The message is clear. Job is not seeking God. Job is not pure and upright, as he supposedly claims to be. Remember what Job has said about seeking, this concept of seeking in relation to God. Bildad is here actually taking a direct stab at what Job has said. Do you remember what he said? The end of chapter 7, Job says, For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me, but I shall not be. Job is addressing God. His concern is that God is going to seek him too late. Well, too late for what? Well, the answer is that Job wants to know that he is in fellowship with God before he dies. He wants God to come to him and assure him of the forgiveness of his sins, because at present he feels like he's under the wrath of God, and he knows that he is about to die. He, in fact, wants to die. He wants to be set free from the anguish that he's going through, but he also knows that if he dies under the wrath of God, his death is not going to make things better. He will be gone forever from God's presence, from any possibility of fellowship with God. And so his concern is that God would seek him in grace and forgiveness before he dies. As things are, Job has sought God. He has sought the forgiveness of his sins, but that seems to be for nothing. Now all he can do is wait for God to seek him and to assure him of his salvation. And so the ball is in God's court, so to speak. That's from Job's point of view. Job can only wait for God to seek him. And this is really the correct perspective of anyone who realizes that he's saved by grace. We don't go to God, we ought not to go to God, and demand anything. We can go to God and we can lay out that we have done what we believe he has called us to do, and we can lay claim to promises that he has made, but we cannot demand anything. And so Job asks why God has not pardoned his sin, why he's not taken away his iniquity. 
He knows the promise of the gospel of God forgiving the penitent who trusts in the Messiah to come. And so he pleads for God to seek him in line with the gospel promise and to do it before it's too late. Well, Bildad rejects Job's claim. In verses 5 and 6, he completely contradicts Job's perspective and he calls on Job to seek God. Bildad is indirectly saying that Job has not sought God for the forgiveness of his sins, that he's not, he has not pleaded with God for mercy. He has not humbled himself before God and sought God's help and salvation. Well, how does he know this? Because his belief system says that any sinner who has repented of sin and is truly pure and upright will be restored. If he was a person of repentance, God would respond with mercy and would return Job to his former state of greatness. You see in verses 8 through 10 that Bildad appeals to the authority of tradition. He wants Job to know that what he is saying is grounded in beliefs that the people of God have, have held to for centuries. Bildad is essentially telling Job, we must not imagine that we in our short lifetimes can figure out everything on our own, but we need to rest on the shoulders of those who have gone before us. Job, what I'm telling you is the belief system that has a long history backed by wisdom and experience. And Job, as long as you disagree with me and fight what I am saying, you show yourself to be outside of the mainstream beliefs of the people of God. And then we have Bildad calling Job a hypocrite by means of a couple of illustrations taken from nature and everyday life. First, Bildad directs Job's attention to the papyrus plant, which is a tall grass. It's similar to cattails or reeds that you've probably seen growing along the edge of a pond or in a marshy area. And what Bildad highlights about papyrus is that it requires the soil to be soaking wet and is apparently not able to live at all in soil that dries out. And it's chosen for this illustration because it's a plant that grows very aggressively and flourishes, while at the same time, it withers away more quickly than any other plant. Most plants can be cut down, and their flowers and their leaves will last for a while, but papyrus, without even being cut down, will wither away rather quickly if it runs out of water. The point of analogy is to describe the wicked. Verses 13 through 15 is the application. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. So the wicked are like a papyrus plant in that they can be found thriving in this world. They they put on a show of prosperity, but in time their position is shown to be precarious. They have no lasting foundation and they just wither away. All who forget God, who put their hope in this life, are like papyrus plants that run out of water. The wicked will find that their security in life is like a spider's web, like a house that's falling apart. Uh, Some have suggested that this figure of the wicked leaning against his house is a way of expressing how unbelievers put their trust in their family or in their careers, in their possessions, really in anything of this life that they imagine will bring them security. But these things are not able to support life into eternity. 
that's the first of his illustrations. Um, this illustration that comes out of the papyrus plant. Next, Bildad turns to the second illustration involving a plant, and this time he describes a lush plant that is facing the heat of the day. There are differences of opinion about what is described, and naturally differences which are going to affect how the figure is to be understood and applied. So there are those who see this as yet another figure of the destruction of the wicked. The second plant, it's lush, it's flourishing, but its roots cannot seem to find anything to sustain its life. It sends roots all over the yard in a great effort to find moisture and to keep itself alive, but it only finds stones. And it ends up being destroyed either by the sun, perhaps someone pulls up the plant, or an animal tears up the plant, but as it's pulled up, no one even remembers that it was there. Verse 19 is then translated differently than how we have it in the ESV. Uh, it's true that the Hebrew is a bit obscure, and so it's argued that verse 19 continues to describe the destruction of the wicked. So, for example, the NIV says, Surely its life withers away, and from the soil other plants grow. So that's one interpretation. Then there are those who see actually the second plant as a figure of the righteous. The lush plant stays lush, even in hot weather, because its roots are able to find water. It has a vigorous life where it's able to send roots throughout the garden, and even though there are stones, it's able to find a place for its roots to wind through these stones to find water. Uh, The interpreters uh, who take it this way think that that's clearly implied here. And if he is destroyed, the great thing about the way this plant works is that it has this root system all through the garden, and so it will then send up shoots. Even if the plants on top are destroyed, eventually new shoots will come up and new plants will grow. Applied to Job, the application seems rather straightforward. If Job is a wicked man, he is like a papyrus or a plant, or or like that lush plant with roots and stones, which flourishes only for a time. When you have a life without God, especially if it is a life lived in rebellion against God, you are to anticipate that God in his justice is going to bring you down and you will wither away. And so Bildad's message is, Job, you're, you're withering away because you've turned from God. You are a wicked man. If the second plant is meant to be a righteous person, The application to Job is also evident. The lush plant has its setbacks. It has its difficulties as it faces the sun, as it has to navigate its roots through stones. It may even be destroyed from its place, whether by an animal or pulled up by a person, but in the end it comes back because its roots are still intact. And in the end, the way of the righteous is one of joy and prosperity because God always restores the righteous. So yes, Job has experienced a setback, But if he is righteous, he will spring back. That's another possibility of what Bildad is saying. And then in verses 20 through 22, we have Bildad's response. He he summarizes well his view of God and justice. He says, the blameless man, what Job is, will not be rejected by God. He will not take the hand of evildoers in order to lift them out of troubles and bless them. If Job is truly blameless and repents of his sin, he will soon be able to laugh again and shout for joy, and his enemies will be no more. 
Bildad's system of belief, his worldview is rather simple. It is straightforward that God is a God of strict retribution. He gives the wicked what they deserve, and he gives the righteous what they deserve. There's no place in Bildad's world for someone who is blameless and suffering, nor should there be a place in his world for someone who is wicked and prosperous. His is a world without grace where everyone always and only gets what they deserve all the time. And we see how Bildad doesn't show Job any grace. He doesn't give him the benefit of the doubt. He unmercifully judges him. We need to be asking ourselves, well, what's the proof of what he says? Where is proof of Job's sin? Where is proof of the sin of his children? Since when is it a mark of godliness and wisdom to charge someone with, uh, of sin without proof? Ron Hanko, in his commentary, says this. He says, Bildad is the most outspoken and pitiless of Job's friends. What he says of God and men is true, but is grossly misapplied in Job's case. His cruelty to Job is common, though, for today, too, many will accuse those who are suffering of a weak faith or of some secret sin of bringing their trial upon themselves. They are modern-day Bildads, end quote. So let this be a warning that you and I not be like Bildad in how we confront our suffering friends. It's not our place to interpret God's providences as they pertain to other people. Even in our own lives, we need to be careful how we interpret what is happening to us. Is every setback, is every difficulty God's judgment upon our sin? It's very easy to fall into a retribution, works-based mindset where we imagine that our status with God has to do with our performance of holiness at any given moment. For example, my thoughts turned in a sinful direction, so am I now to expect judgment? I realize I didn't love my neighbor as I ought, and so is the hammer of God's justice now going to come down upon me? And what if I really mess up and do something that is particularly heinous? Is my life now going to be ruined? What a horrible way to live. And it's a way of life that Christ has delivered us from. We don't have to wonder where we stand with God. Through faith in him, we know that we are forever loved and saved by God. And there's also the opposite, equally dangerous way of thinking, which is to imagine that our lives are going well or are going to go well because we are living a holy life. If you are living a pure and upright life, then and only then can you expect life to go well and God to be on your side. Bildad appears to be, whether he would admit it or not, operating out of a works-based system of fellowship with God where you are in and out of God's love and blessings based upon your faithfulness to God. Let us see also, though, how Bildad is inadvertently contradicting his own system of belief or at least introducing ideas that are not totally consistent with it. On the one hand, you have Job who is being told in verse 6, if you are pure and upright... Surely then he will rouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. The idea may be very similar to that which was expressed by Eliphaz, that things are going to turn around for you, Job, if in fact you are the pure and upright man that you claim to be. 
But let's pause for a moment. Actually, that word pure is a new word in the discussion. And as best as I can tell from a study of the Hebrew, it means basically to be without sin. It means to be without any mixture of anything impure. God never said that Job was pure, and Job has never claimed to be pure. But God did say Job was upright, which means that he consistently showed love to the neighbor. So we wonder, does Bildad think that believers are capable of being pure in this life? Perfect in the sense of being without sin? Perfect conformity to God's law? Completely holy lives? If Bildad is thinking that being pure is what is required in order to experience God's blessing, then there's no hope of any of us ever being blessed by God. Who is pure? Now, by faith, we are righteous. That's a different word. We are righteous in God's sight, legally, judicially. That's different than being pure. Pure means holy, utterly without sin in in our hearts. In terms of our everyday lives, the reality is there's this constant mixture of impurity in what we do because of the remnants of our corrupt nature. It touches all that we do. And so this idea of being pure in this life, that's an impossible standard. But let's suppose Bildad thinks purity is possible in this life. Well, if Job is already pure and upright, he is at least seeming to admit that that's possible, then why has he suffered to begin with? Maybe the idea is that though he sinned and is being punished for, for his sin, if he will now change his ways and become pure and upright, the punishment will end. But that's not possible. It's not possible that Job would become pure. I, I guess Job's punishment will never end. And, and such a view is also not consistent with strict justice because doing what is right does not get you off the hook for doing something wrong. If a man has committed a murder and then years later is caught and convicted, it would actually be injustice for a judge to let him off on the basis, well, the years after his murder, he was just this outstanding citizen who did only good for his community, did charity work, and he did all of these wonderful things for the community. No, justice says that wrongdoing can only be paid with punishment. Strict justice would say that if Job has not been pure and upright, he must suffer punishment until the debt is paid. And good works aren't going to change that. Nevertheless, Bildad seems to allow for the possibility of Job being forgiven. Verse 5, he says to Job, If you will seek God and plead with the Almighty for mercy, then he may restore you. If that's what he intends to say, then he is acknowledging the possibility of forgiveness. But notice, forgiveness is not consistent with strict justice. But I actually read verses 5 and 6 as all belonging together. He's saying, if you seek God, if you plead for mercy, if you are pure and upright, when all of these conditions are met, then God will restore you which would be a works-based righteousness that says that you can seek God and you can plead for mercy only if you come to him with your holiness and your good works. Only if you meet all of these conditions will God forgive you and bless you. Well, that's grace, and that's not even really forgiveness. It's asking God to bless you on the basis of your good works. And in Bildad's system, apparently you have to merit God's favor. 
And the opposite then would also be true, would it not, that if you sin, you can only expect to merit God's wrath. Along the same lines, if Job is the papyrus, then the idea is that Job is a wicked man who in the end has shown that he isn't really a follower of God and he has just gotten what he deserves. If the papyrus plant represents a wicked believer straying from God into sin and experiencing judgment, it seems to imply that the believer can be utterly cut off from any hope and any blessing. The analogy, if applied to Job as a believer, says he was prospering under God's blessing, but by his sin cut himself off from uh, the water supply of God's blessing. Um, the analogy would say that, yes, he was, he was prospering, but then cut himself off from the water supply. And that's a problematic view. That seems to say that a believer can lose his salvation. Actually, what Bildad goes on to say indicates that the papyrus person is an unbeliever. He says in verse 13, by way of application, such are the paths of all who forget God, the hope of the godless shall perish. So Bildad is not afraid to say that Job is one of these godless people who has forgotten God. But has Bildad thought through the implications of this illustration? Until the water dried up, the papyrus plant prospered. Is Bildad saying the wicked have good things happen to them in this life? Is he admitting that the wicked don't always immediately get what they deserve? For if this papyrus plant represents wicked unbelievers, this plant was allowed to grow and even flourish for a while. This does not fit with a consistent, uh, does not fit consistently with a worldview of strict justice. And I take the second plant analogy as a contrasting illustration of the righteous. That's how I tend to, to take the second plant. And if this is what Bildad was intending, we can be glad that he at least held out some hope for Job being a righteous man. He hasn't totally judged Job to be an unbeliever. And yet the illustration is problematic to Bildad's worldview. For if Job as a righteous man is this lush plant whose roots end up staying connected to the waters of God's blessings ends up prospering from the roots, even after being destroyed, some very interesting implications start to arise. For the illustration does acknowledge that believers suffer. The plant has to work to find water in the stony soil. The plant is destroyed from its place, but then comes back in the form of new roots. Why is the plant restored? because it remains connected to God through its roots. But what keeps us connected to God and his blessings? Is it our works? No, it's our faith. Faith, which is given as a gift of God. That is what keeps us connected to God, a faith that is not a matter of works, a faith that is about looking to God to bless us when we don't deserve it, a faith that's a matter of trusting in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, to maintain our fellowship with God. And Bildad's illustration rightly acknowledges that believers do indeed suffer in this life. But if our suffering is because we have to suffer the wrath of God as punishment for our sins, then who is to say that we will one day be restored? Who is to say for certain that out of the soil new shoots will come up? Who is to say when and if the punishment will, will ever be paid? If Bildad believes believers will always be restored eventually, 
then Bildad's view must be that the righteous can pay for their sins by experiencing punishment. The question that I would have for Bildad is this. If I am suffering for sin, but I've turned from those sins and I've begun to live a pure and upright life and therefore don't deserve any more punishment, won't I still need to suffer for the sins that I've committed? Even if I am pure and upright now, won't I still be experiencing punishment until my debt is paid? And I can imagine Bildad saying, well, it doesn't really work that way, that once you've repented of your sin, God will restore you. But then you see you've opened yourself up to a worldview that isn't based on strict justice. The gospel of grace, which doesn't fit with Bildad's worldview, is all about God setting his love on undeserving sinners. It's about God choosing to bless sinners who have forfeited the right to eternal life. It's about God choosing to withhold punishment from sinners to give them an opportunity to experience his goodness, which he says should lead the sinner to repentance. The good news is that while sin must be punished according to God's justice, yes, it's not required that we suffer for every sin that we commit. The good news is that Jesus took our sins upon himself. A Bildadian form of strict justice would say that an innocent man can't pay the penalty of others. But that is exactly what Jesus did. He, though innocent of any personal sin, took responsibility for our sins and satisfied the justice of God, allowing himself to be punished in our place. This punishment was really all of the suffering that he endured in his life, and especially in his death on the cross. And we need to recognize that really his entire life was marked by suffering Because during his entire life, he was bearing the curse of our sins. He was bearing the wrath of God that should have been poured out upon us. And consequently, it is in Jesus that we see God's love and justice equally and fully manifested in a way that is utterly consistent. In Jesus, the door is opened to the possibility of suffering that is redemptive. Having suffered all of the punishment our sins deserve, there's no debt to be paid by your suffering believer. Praise God, Bildad is wrong. Now, of course, there is such a thing as chastening, but that's sent in love when you need discipline. But not all of your suffering is chastening. It wasn't for Job. Some of it has nothing to do with your sin. But for sure, none of your suffering, believer, is paying the debt of your sin under God's justice. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, the good news of you not giving us what we deserve, of not treating us with strict justice, but allowing your son to be our substitute, allowing your son to suffer in our place, and in this way, Uh, showing that there is both justice and love that can work at the same time. But Father, we thank you that not all that we experience of the hardships in this life uh, has to do with our sin. Yes, at times we admit we need chastening. Uh, It's sent in love. We need that loving discipline at times. But Lord, we're thankful that none of our suffering is paying the debt of our sin. We're thankful that Jesus paid that debt for us. Father, we pray that you would keep us from this worldview that 
Bildad has that everything good must mean we've done good works. Everything bad must mean we've sinned. Father, we pray that we'd be set free from this works-based type of relationship with you, realizing that we are saved, we are loved forever, that that cannot be changed. Uh, We've put our faith and trust in Christ, so we are righteous. And one day we will even be pure. One day we will be holy, but all because of what Christ has done. We thank you that we don't have to be pure now in order to experience blessings, for then we would never experience blessings. Um, Father, we pray that these things would be clear to us, that we would be comforted in the midst of our suffering. And Father, may we be good friends to those around us, that we would not be those who would be judging, that we would not be interpreting the providences of uh, the people in our lives, but leave that uh, between you and them. So Father, spare us from being these cruel comforters, such as Job's friends were, uh, Father, may we be those who, who uh, recognize and, and speak of your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.